Uh, Garrett O.C. from California. Garrett? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Garrett O., and I'm an alcoholic. And I want to thank Bud very much for asking me to be here, and I'm very glad to be here. I, there was earlier on today some discussion about recovering or recovered. And just sitting there in my lonely vigil, uh, listening, um, I, I, I know that recovering is the correct word. Because I was so nervous about this talk that uh, I was actually hoping for something would happen to deliver me away from it. <laughs> I, I thought maybe I'll have a heart attack. I actually was looking forward to an MI sitting in that. <laughs> Then, then I thought, uh, during dinner, I thought, well, one way to stop this would be to order a bottle of wine. <laughs> that, and I actually had, I had, I didn't want to drink it, I just to order it. I said, that would, that would cause me to be expelled. Uh, and then, then, as time was uh, going by, Bud had asked me to speak the other day for 45 minutes, or however long I would like. That's what he said. And uh, the waitress came in, and, and, and Liz turned around to me and said, how long are you going to speak for a half hour? And here, having thought that I was going to be wanting to speak as little as possible or not at all, suddenly I have an ego like an inflatable airbag in a car. <laughs> I turned into a savage. I said, half an hour? Half, no, 45 minutes at least. A half an hour wouldn't do me. <laughs> so here I am. I've been, I really have been terribly nervous about this talk. I do a lot of you know, public speaking, but last time I was in Minnesota was a long time ago in 1967, and I, I was put in jail in Virginia, Minnesota. Disorderly conduct. Brief four or five hours in jail. But I've been very nervous about this, and I, I don't really know why. I mean, this morning, I went up to the drugstore, and I was with my friend Bruce Walker. He said, what are you going to the drugstore for? And I said, well, uh, it's my hair. I left my hair gel at home. And he said, your hair looks fine. And I said, no, it won't stand up. And he said, well, nobody at the back will notice. And I said, my hair has to stand up. And so I obsessed about that. And, of course, what I... <laughs> I had to get the right hair gel and go, and then I found myself in my room earlier on putting on my coat and I put on three or four ties and four different shirts. And I, nothing looked right and this red thing wouldn't go with anything. And uh, I thought actually I'd go down to the store and buy a new coat. So I'm certainly nervous about this talk and why? Why am I nervous? I couldn't figure it out and then I suddenly thought, well this is a very special group of people. I mean I'm a doctor and I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to tell my story, and I don't have any slides, and I don't have any videos, as I often do, and it's just me. And here is the most critical audience in the world. I mean, it would be like a spy who'd been away for 25 or 30 years, you know, coming back to his colleagues in the CIA and talking about living underground for 25 years. Well, he couldn't get away with anything, because they'd all know. And one of the things about talking to general groups of AA or others is that being a physician, they kind of let you get away with murder, you know. And that's part of my problem here. It's part of our problem because alcoholics indeed often do, and particularly physicians maybe, actually get away with murder. That's how serious this disease is for us. I often think, you know, talking about the CIA, you know, we are a sort of a national resource here, a national treasure. We should pronounce ourselves. Uh, because instead of the CIA going up to Princeton and Yale and looking for operatives and spies there, uh, they just should come here. Because this group of people are highly trained in all of the 
methods of disinformation, <laughs> covering our tracks, being interrogated and providing no information. And, <laughs> and yet the person doing in the interrogation feels completely satisfied that they've got the truth. <laughs> Persuading our spouses when you don't remember five or six hours of the night before, we're able to find out from them by careful methodologies what happened without them knowing that they're being interrogated so that we can fill in five or six hours of a blackout to know whether she would leave town or send flowers or whatever because of what <laughs> so we have all of these enormous skills which are going to waste and all they'd have to do to hear to just come and, and give us a phrase book bring us to Langley for three weeks and send us to Tibet or Afghanistan or China or wherever else um, so why again uh, be nervous Well, I'm nervous again because I try being an AA and I know it's a program of rigorous honesty. And I have been in my own life such a liar from time to time. But I tried to tell the truth at a time like this. But I can't guarantee that no matter how sincere I am here that I will in fact tell you the truth. Because I honestly don't know. What I say here, sincere though it may be, may have little or no reflection on the facts as they took place and I have no control over that because many times in my life thinking back on a story I've told I've gone back to check to see if in fact that happened and I find that it may not have happened at all or else the story happened to somebody else and I thought it ought to have happened to me <laughs> and over time I have gradually assimilated bits and pieces of other people into my history told the story enough so that the visual images come to mind with me and those things that either never happened at all to anyone or happened to somebody else have become mine <laughs> and that didn't stop with stopping drinking giving up that image of myself that I tried to create this this personality, this idea of myself that was based on experiences that either, either never happened or didn't happen to me of course made me feel empty all the time because I had a history that didn't belong to me and I would tell you about it as if it did and that was the hardest thing for me to give up for newcomers here for me giving up drinking was easy enough but giving something up that I cherished and that actually become part of me was like a surgical tearing without an anesthetic giving up these cherished pieces of me that in recovery I was forced to contemplate were not actually me so now that only did I lose the option and the right to drink I lost the option and the right to be the person that I had been for so very long and that I believed in this part of the creature that I created was to please you and to make me look good and I could even tell you bad things about myself that would actually make me look good nobility and courage and those kind of things and so giving up that was very difficult so I will do my best to tell you the truth tonight but I can't guarantee that it really is the truth it's the best I can do and part of the joy and part of the terror of recovery is encountering the truth in oneself and the fifth and the sixth steps became willing to have these all these character defects removed and being willing to pray to God to remove these character defects the character defects don't go away I've been sober quite a long time the character defects are still there I live with them 
I have learned even to cherish them because they are part of me. They are just as authentic a part of me as the good and generous parts of me. So that the program of recovery for me has allowed me to live with myself, not as I used to, to change myself, to alter myself like a chameleon, like an actor, like a clown. I could do that because I was Irish. The worst place that I can be in sobriety is in the Department of Psychiatry at UCLA, where I drank and was for many years and still am on a part-time basis. Because they say there to me if I go in there, Oh, Gareth, you're never an alcoholic. You're just Irish. <laughs> that was my diagnosis, they say, you know. Oh, you drank as much as you did so as we didn't have to drink as much as we wanted to. And they say, furthermore, you were much better fun in those days than you are now, going around talking about recovery and holding the finger up to everybody. We, they, we, we remember, they say, those great speeches you gave in the Southern California Psychiatric Society. And I say, but I don't. <laughs> So it's a, dangerous, it's a dangerous place to be, and this disease is so cunning, powerful, and baffling that sometimes I don't go into the department uh, too often because it's too much of a dangerous place to be. I'm much safer in a bar than I am very frequently in a department of psychiatry. I grew up in a medical family which again was loaded with paradox because my father was a doctor, but he was a coroner. He was a pathologist, so I grew up with body parts in the back of the car all the time. The coroner used to do home visits in those days, and when he would be called out for a murder, he'd do the autopsy right then, and as he was curator of the museum in the university, the pathology museum, he would bring back, if he found an interesting kidney or a heart or a brain, he kept a, um, a metal tray, like a butcher's tray, in the back of the car, and he'd just put a tea towel over it and bring it home, and then put it in the, in the, in the, in the college. So I, I was, grew up with these body parts, and I remember once having my, having my um, monthly pocket money removed because I sat inadvertently on a liver abscess. And... <laughs> ruined it. He said I, I had deprived a whole generation of medical students. He said, because it was the best abscess he'd seen in 30 years. And it was strange growing up, you know, good preparation for being an alcoholic, because growing up in a medical family where the focus was on death. I remember once going along in a, in a car, I was about five or six years of age, and uh, we stopped. It was a rainy day, and it was just my mother and father in the front and me in the back and maybe a brother. And I looked out, and we stopped at a little knot of people standing in the middle of the road. And there on the, on the ground was a woman, inert, and a car, a Kimbo, across the street. And there she was, lying in front of the car. My father stopped, and he got out, and I was staring out of the car. I'd never seen a dead person before. And he went over, and he knelt down, and the people reverently stood back. A doctor was there, and he knelt down, and he sort of looked at her and he shook her a little bit and I remember her skirt was all picked up I have a very vivid memory of this and a ladder going up her stocking and the rain coming down and he shook her and palpated her a bit and then he came back and he got into the car and he drove off and he turned to my mother whose name was Eileen said Eileen huh she's still alive nothing I can do for her See, that, that taught me to live with paradox, number one. And also, there was a man who knew his limitations, which was something I did not get in the genetic line of things. I never have known my limitations. But I was just thinking tonight, as I visualize that place, that must have been about maybe 1942 that happened. And about 40 years later, I was driving along 
in the same, exactly the same place, except coming the other way. And there had been some kind of a bank raid that day, or a, a disturbance in Dublin. It was two o'clock in the morning, and the police were out. And they had a roadblock up, and everyone had to stop. And there were five or six cars ahead of me, and were driving along, and I stopped the roadblock and gradually inched up to the policeman who was there, three or four of them, with the roadblock up. And he looked at me, and he looked in the front of the car, in the window. I, hmm, he said. And he came around to the front of the car, and I put down the... We sit on the right-hand side over there. I put down the thing, and I looked up, and he looked in. And he said, hmm. He said, you're looking very doleful. I said, doleful, officer? No, I'm not doleful, I'm just tired. Tired, is it, he said? <laughs> said, how much have you had to drink? I said, <laughs> well, I said, officer, actually, I haven't had anything to drink for four years. Hmm. That must be what's the matter with you, he said. <laughs> There, there was no chapter in his manual to deal with the sober motorist. And he advised me to go home very carefully and, be, and so on. Uh, but th- again, that, that describes the culture I grew up in. And my family was full of alcoholism on both sides. When I was young, I knew I would grow up to be an alcoholic. I just knew it because everybody else had. And I drank early from the age. I won't go into my drunkalogue very much, but just for the newcomers, so as you know... I really am an alcoholic, and a very grateful one. But I drank the altar wine, like many people here probably did. And I drank it because I was at a vicious, savage, brutal boarding school, and it really made life a lot easier to be drunk by 8 o'clock in the morning. At home, there was a lot of drinking. There was domestic violence. Um, I remember once, I, I had TB when I was 13, and uh, I was kept at home, and I was put sleeping with my mother in the same room as my mother. And my mother was a chronic alcoholic, and I was just going through sort of throes of a pubescent sexual frenzy, and here I had TV, and uh, my mother would go around in negligees, and uh, it was very stimulating sexually for me, this image of my mother. And she would often fall about and fall around drunk. I was so stimulated, as a matter of fact, uh, that even in those early days, we alcoholics do take such terrible risks in service our, of our addiction. And I remember during the days when I TV, when I was supposed to stay in bed, my mother would be having a bath. I would climb up the, the, the drain pipe of our house and hang off the water spout like a gibbon, trying to look in the bathroom window at my mother having a bath. Because it was so intensely erotic and stimulating. And in that, in that, climate. One night I was in bed, my mother was getting into the other bed, and she was stumbling around and she tried to get into bed with me. And I don't think I've ever been so sexually excited in my life. And suddenly I didn't know what to do, I was terrified. And the door burst open, and in came my father who was a big man, and he grabbed my mother by the hair and dragged her over, and then I heard the sound of bone crunching against bone for the first time in my life. And I was sent out of the room. And I went up stairs where the maids were, and my sister was. And they were sitting there, and I said, Daddy is murdering Mummy downstairs. And the maids went on knitting, and my sister went on listening to the radio. And nobody did anything. And the next day, my mother had a huge bruise on her maxilla. And it was said that she bumped into the door. To my knowledge, I'm the only one 
in the family, if my memory is at all true, that knows or admits that that happened. And so it was one of the early secrets. Everyone knew my mother was an alcoholic, but they didn't know about this secret aspect. And I would know where her bottles were hidden. And she and I entered into a secret compact that I would not reveal secrets about her where her bottles were hidden if she didn't reveal that I was drinking them from a very early stage. Imagine what that kind of thing does to the mind of a captured little boy the age of 12 or 13. And then I was sent to a boarding school. And incidentally, none of what I say is a complaint. I had very loving parents, really, genuinely, and I feel no resentment. Not even do I have to provide forgiveness. But the feelings were there and very strong. I went to this boarding school and I was flogged and beaten and so on. But that was all right. That wasn't a big deal because you could you could be a hero when you were being flogged and beaten. You could stand up and you could revolt against the authority. When that particular boarding school, there was humiliation attached to it because when you were going to be punished, they didn't tell you when. They gave you a slip of paper, like a ticket. And sometime in the next three or four days, a priest would point out to you, somewhere in class, in the study, in the refectory, as you were walking along, he would point out and do this. And then you would go up and be beaten, perhaps with your pants down, certainly with your hands out. It was that shame and humiliation of waiting and not knowing when the punishment would come that was so sadistic and brutal. Because the anxiety of that was like waiting there tonight. When will it come? When will it ever end? (laughs) The punishment was actually a relief when it happened. But I brought that all into my adult life. And I drank and I blacked out and I did all the things and I vomited long before it was fashionable, before bulimia was ever heard of. Uh, I wanted to tell you, to convince you that I was a man who could drink a lot in Ireland. And yet I couldn't drink a lot because I would get drunk very quickly. So I devised a method in the 50s of drinking pints of beer. And then after I'd had one or two drunk, I'd go out and get rid of them, come back and drink two more. And I would do that five or six times a night. And I got the reputation as a little guy for being able to drink eight or nine or 10 or 12 or 15 pints of beer. But in fact, the amount of alcohol that was going in was very little. So that was part of the double life that I would lead and how I created an image for myself that seemed to be adaptive at the time, but gradually ran out of steam. And the drinking that I did, I lost my tolerance, and more and more damage happened, more and more inappropriate events, uh, more and more inability to handle my emotions, outbursts of rage. And my father, who was also an alcoholic, but a functional one, had outbursts of rage. It was called a spastic colon in those days. But he told me before he died that he drank a bottle of whiskey every day. And so I had rages. And incidentally, most of the character defects that I had, my rages sexual acting out, those kinds of things, continued into sobriety. They didn't stop when I stopped drinking. I depended on those character defects for survival because they had been formed and born in survival in a culture and in a family, and they stayed with me for quite some time. They're still with me tonight, that inflatable automobile ego that just... You're trying to stuff it back in like a parachute, you know, but it doesn't go back in. So I came to this country in 1972, trailing clouds of scandal. In 19, I beg your pardon, 1960, trailing clouds of scandal, and my drinking just continued to get worse. And there were episode after episode um, to qualify as a really tragic alcoholic. I missed the birth of my second son, 
because I was drunk. I was playing rugby. I was the captain of the rugby team in Baltimore, which I'd started. My wife was pregnant. Time came for her to deliver. I had missed the birth of my first son because my ex-wife had got pregnant in Ireland and she had to go to England to have the baby because it was such a scandal. My father said the scandal would break his heart and maybe kill him. So I missed his birth too. I missed the birth, hadn't thought of that, of both of my children because of drinking. And this particular time I told the OB nurses I was the captain of the rugby team. We were playing Princeton or someone important like that. So I had to be at the party and I had to host the party and to let me know when I should come. I loved my wife and I was looking forward to the child. And they called me at the party and said, it's time for you to come. And it takes a drunken alcoholic a long time to leave a party, saying goodbye and so on. And I got there too late. Baby was being delivered as I arrived and they wouldn't let me into the delivery room, quite rightly so, because I was drunk. So there were these tragedies, terrible troubles with intimacy, yearning for it, hoping that I would never have a family like I came from, which wasn't a bad family, but it had these terrible things within it, secrets and violence and some kind of incest. And there was no validation from anybody else about that. And I resolved that that would never happen to me again and that I would have a new kind of family, a different one in which there would be openness and honesty and truth and sincerity and love and intimacy. And then I created the same kind of family with their assistance that I had left, in which there was domestic violence caused by me and there was sexual acting out again on my part affairs dishonesty and yet I thought I was doing my best and I thought my life was a good one drinking drinking forever and in 1977 I moved from Baltimore from Johns Hopkins to UCLA in 1972 having left my wife divorced her become involved with my present wife whom I love very deeply and very much and we moved to UCLA in full geographic mode all sails furling blowing and I lasted five years there in UCLA before I drank myself almost to death and uh, resigned my tenured faculty position and uh, for six months I think tried to drink myself to death uh, before getting into recovery and so I've been in recovery uh, since then and it's been a wonderful, wonderful, marvelous experience because everything that I have really wanted has had the potential to come true even though it hasn't come true. But the only reason it doesn't come true is because of what I do to prevent it from coming true. My recovery, I thought finally, after all of this fooling around that I had done in my life, I had never wanted to become a doctor in the first place, but I did because my father wanted me to be. I wanted to become an actor, but he said, if you become an actor, you'll become a homosexual. <laughs> all actors are homosexual <laughs> and he said furthermore it's cheaper for me if you go through medical school because he was the dean of the medical school so I came here and I was a doctor I had a degree I didn't want a degree I did my best uh, to do what I needed to do uh, but still my interests were elsewhere my sphere of interest stopped about there because it was mostly connected with myself looking back on it and in early recovery uh, there I was thinking that I'd finally found a job opportunity, the job opportunity of my life. I was brought into an AA meeting drunk, a men's stag. I came into AA, my wife had left me quite wisely, and I came into AA looking for women. So they brought me to a men's stag. 
And I stayed in men's stags for five or six years because that's where I was safest. And I thought after a while, well, this is wonderful. There weren't too many doctors in AA in Los Angeles then. Um, so I traded on that. I became a recovering doctor within AA and people would hold whole little clinics after meetings and give me symptoms and I would treat them even though I wasn't qualified as a psychiatrist I mean not an internist right? <laughs> but they did that and it made me feel something and then gradually it, it began to dawn on me that this is a wonderful job opportunity where was Bill Wilson I began to actually have a delusion to begin to think of myself as the great Garrett O who had been born in Dublin in 1937 and wafted all the way to this country to do to finish Bill Wilson's job at that time at that time AA was threatened by the conflict between addicts and alcoholics could addicts be members of AA and there were very serious discussions about that and I with training as an organizational consultant felt that I would heal the rift of AA and that I would finally accede and ascend to the position of Bill W and I even thought that I would not turn down as he had my picture on the face of Time magazine now I didn't tell anyone about this I also didn't I didn't get a sponsor because I could find nobody that was old enough or good enough or wise enough or long enough in sobriety or articulate enough or witty enough or anything enough for me, the great Garrett O. And so I persisted with this secret until a series of... I used to interview sponsors and bring them to lunch. They didn't know they were having job interviews to be the sponsor of the great Garrett O. And I was lonely. I couldn't understand when I would make a pitch at AA because I could speak and so they asked me. I didn't do any of the steps. I did all the steps in the first 24 hours of my time in AA drunk. I made transatlantic phone calls on the eight and nine steps. And the next night I came to another main stag and I said, I've done the 12 steps now in AA. What is there now? And they all laughed. And so I just sewed it up as a resentment and I didn't turn a leaf of the big book for four and a half years. But you would never know that because I spoke and I flowered and did 12 step calls. And as I spoke, I left the impression with you. I was like Christ when I asked, you know, are you God, they'd say, and he'd tell a parable. He never said yes or no. And then when they said, what step are you on, or are you done the steps, I wouldn't say yes or no. I'd tell parables and go around it. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why at other meetings, after the meeting, there'd be lines of people waiting to shake the hand of the speaker. And when I would speak, people would be cleaning the ashtrays and uh, tidying the chairs, rolling the tables. And I would walk out and drive home feeling just suicidal, hateful, feeling like an imposter. Why? Because I was an imposter. I was pretending nothing had really changed. I just stopped drinking and now I was pretending to be an AA member. And that has been with me, that's what I continue to struggle with. So I continue to struggle with. So I continued on and uh, my, in due course, as many people have talked about here, my children uh, became addicted, became alcoholic. Um, even as I was in recovery, the more I did to try and get them to meetings, the less they did, the more drugging they did. And, uh, and yet I sort of hung on, hoping that somehow my recovery would eventually impress them. And as a matter of fact, it did, because my oldest son, who's almost as old as I am, uh, he has now 12 years, uh, my youngest son has 12 years of recovery, and my oldest son has 11 years. And my dear beloved wife, is, um, uh, she's got 13 years. And my ex-wife, uh, the one whom I left, um, and she is now living in Los Angeles, come back from Scotland, and we have sort of reconstituted ourselves as a kind of extended family. And all of that, we have meetings and we discuss the past and the present, and all of that is only made possible through 
Alcoholics Anonymous, and that's an extraordinary achievement. So I've continued on. Um, I, when I was drinking, it used to seem to me that uh, uh, humiliation, of which I had a lot, because I arranged myself to be humiliated a lot, uh, was uh, the um, cause of resentment and rage and anger. And it's only in recovery that I've realized that actually the connection between the word humiliation and humility, that humiliation leads to humility. And so I found myself continuing in recovery in a strange way, filled with compulsions, still having terrible outbursts of rage. And because of this program, I'm sure there's nobody else in the room who continues to have character defects after stopping drinking and entering the program, but I do. And for the newcomers, don't be alarmed that here's somebody with quite a long time in sobriety having character defects because they continue to exist. And I carried on some from my early family life. That was the connection for me. The rages, my father's rages, they were my rages. And I, I took up then a new kind of uh, thing that hadn't occurred before. I developed some sexual compulsivities because I had terrible troubles in intimacy. And I, I think, uh, I've never, people normally don't talk about these in AA because you're supposed to share in a general way. But what happened? Uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. And sometimes for me, it's what it was like what happened depending on the day and what it's like. You know, sometimes recovery doesn't always work. Um, but I developed a, um, a, a compulsion to use massage parlors. And I say that with some risk because I know this is being taped and I have a certain public life. But somebody's got to start talking about this in public and this is only a relatively private public place. But somebody's got to talk, I think, about domestic violence, what we did, how it continued, and somebody may have got to start talking openly about sexual issues outside of a, an essay meeting. And the reason I say this is because after I've done this sometimes in the past, so many people have come up to me or written me letters and say, thank you for opening that up because it was very helpful for me. And I think for quite some period of time, I haven't had a compulsion to visit the massage parlor for, I would say, 10 or 12 years, but there was a period of time when I was lonely and isolated in my sobriety that I did. And in fact... I wish to make a pun. I think, because nobody else has ever discussed this with me, and I've never met any other man who did, I think that I supported single-handedly, not wishing to make a pun, the entire massage parlor industry in the United States for a period of about two or three years. Because I don't know anyone else who did. I, honest to God, don't know anyone else who ever visited one of those places. And yet, the, the, the industry is alive and well. And so, that filled me with such terrible humiliation that I realized that that was its purpose. For me to go to a massage parlor and come out in the afternoon at four o'clock into the bright sunlight of, 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 of Los Angeles in a dirty, filthy alleyway with rats and garbage and promising to myself that I would never, never, never do that again. Just as after I might have hit my wife in a moment of panic, the last thing I ever wanted to do was to hit that woman. And yet it came out, I'm an old boxer, it came out like that. And she would go down to the emergency room to have her face, her gorgeous, beautiful face, stitched. And I would bang my head against the wall like a retarded child. I'd done it again. The very thing I never wanted to do. And that's what alcoholism has done to me. It made me do things under its color that were the last things I ever wanted to do. And because they didn't stop when I stopped drinking, it wasn't alcohol. God forgive me, it was me. And that was one of the first realizations that I couldn't escape 
because of alcohol, because it was all inside me, hermetically sealed, and I couldn't get rid of the defects. I had to learn to live with them. I was taught as a Catholic, Agnus Dei Gritolus Peccatamundi, Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. I was taught in the crucifixion that Jesus Christ died for my sins, to take away my sins. And I learned through this program in an Anglican priest that that's not the case. Christ died for me so that I can live with my sins. A fundamentally different concept. Christ died for me so that I can live with my sins. My alcoholism was for me so that I can live with my sins. And so when I would come out from the massage parlor, full of despair, despondency, self-hatred, self-loathing, I would look up and I would say, God, I will never do that again. And it gave me some hope because at that moment I knew I would never do it again. And I had some hope for survival, some hope for rebirth, for renaissance. And I knew I could use the program. And then when it would happen again, again down into the abyss of self-loathing and self-hatred. And that multiplied through all sorts of other character defects. Only this program, the humiliation, allowed me to experience for the first time in my life humility which means experiencing myself in my totality with nothing spared, nothing gone the whole enchilada that's what spirituality for me is really about and God my higher power has sent me things I don't, that doesn't come easily to me you see because I'm lazy and I do try to find the easier softer way and I think I would be dead long ago if I didn't have five fatal diseases to keep me alive. I had TB when I was a child. I then developed alcoholism. In 1980, I had rectal cancer. I developed primary pulmonary hypertension, the disease that people get from FenFen. I've never taken FenFen, but I got it without the FenFen. It's an inevitably fatal disease. And then I also... Um, of course, recently with diabetes, about two years ago with diabetes type 2. Now, that's not coincidental. I used to tell my wife, one thing with me, I've been blessed with good health. And she said, that's delusional. <laughs> but it is the sicknesses, the assaults on my person and my spirit that have allowed me to overcome them, just as the courage in this room, the collective courage that the alcoholics and Al-Anon in this room must itself be a national resource because of our ability to overcome the horror, the terror, the adverse conditions of the terrible disease of alcoholism. And so I, strangely enough, am grateful for those diseases, the ones that I've mentioned, and I really believe that these fatal diseases keep me alive. It's again a sort of paradox with which I'm prepared to live. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very happy to be alive. I know that one of the sadnesses of my alcoholism is that it has um, made it not possible for me to use the opportunities and the gifts that have been given to me. Because I took the softer, easier way so many times with alcohol and then without it. And it's only in the last few years that somehow the great psychiatrist, Scottish psychiatrist, Artie Lang, said that most people never awaken. They die asleep. They're entranced as children into the secrecy and mystery of the family about which they never discover. And they continue to be in that trance for the rest of their lives. He said some people awaken maybe about the age of 50, but not many. And I believe that that happened to me, that I began to awaken at the age of 50. But what I discovered in myself, some of which I've just spoken about, explains to me why it's so important or so common that most people remain asleep. 
because sobriety for me has forced me to look at aspects of myself of which I despise in others. And that for me, the spirituality of it is what spirituality is really about. Learning to accept and cherish in me what I despise the most in others. So that that removes me from blame and from projection, even though I do it all the time. My goal and my effort is to accept who I am and what I am. And I know, and I don't say this in hysteria, I know that under the right circumstances, or under the conditions if they existed, that there is no perfidy or villainy or crime or sin in the world that I know of that I would not personally be able to commit or capable of committing or likely to commit if the circumstances were right. And that has been a very helpful realization uh, for me. I'm going to finish very shortly uh, because by pressure of the bladder, not only my own but everybody else's, many of the urologists have a handy Foley catheter just for the last part to put it in. But it's been a long evening and the desserts hopefully just are waiting outside. Um, so I am again here happy to be in AA. Uh, I am honored to be here tonight at IDAA. I don't really belong very deeply to IDAA. Like most things, I'm a bit of a loner still and on the periphery. I've often described alcoholism as a disease of belonging and alienation. For so many years of my drinking, I was alienated from people I loved and people that loved me. And I was unable to make a bridge across that gap that I yearned so much to close, to seek intimacy. And so I think of alcoholism as a disease that a disease of belonging and a disease of alienation. And the only way that I know of that exists in the face of the earth to combat that is this wonderful 12-step program which so many of us here tonight share. For me, it has allowed me to belong to myself and not have to get rid of parts of myself, deny them. It has allowed me to be myself really for the first time in my life. And it's not a bad self. It's got a lot of cracks and rifts and pockmarks and all of the rest of it. It's not a bad self and I'm happy with it. And I know tonight I will not leave here empty and feeling I'm no good and of no worth because this was not tonight, dramatic though it may have seemed at times, a performance. I am at service, sharing my experience, strength and hope. And Lynn Hankey's earlier on we were talking, he said, yeah. I said, you know, I'm terrified about tonight. And he said, well, you know, as his wife once told him under circumstances, it's not you that are going to be giving this talk tonight. Just let it come. And I said, yeah, but how about my notes? He said, his wife said, no notes. And I said, well, could you bring them in your pocket if you didn't use them? He said, no. But then I'm still, you know. <laughs> I said to somebody today, I'm reflecting and meditating in my room. I was making notes. And there were pages and pages and pages of notes upstairs. But I didn't use them, and I'm not going to look at them now. And I don't know if I've said everything I wanted to say and covered all the bases. I've done my best. And I feel good of sharing, particularly at this meeting, with such an extraordinary group who knows so much about this disease 